I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I have a conversation with professor, scholar, and author Patricia Turner, and she has a new book out this week titled Trash Talk, Anti-Obama Lore and Race in the 21st Century. I really enjoyed this book, and I really, really enjoyed this conversation. The book does a deep dive into the history of anti-Obama sentiment, and it analyzes the racist conspiracy theories, rumors, and tropes that surrounded President Obama and his entire family. We also talk about the attempted erasure of President Obama's accomplishments at the hands of many of these same actors. This is really fascinating. It's a must-listen conversation and a must-read book. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Patricia Turner. Pat Turner, welcome. Nice to be here. You know, I was reading the other day a social media post and something in that post, it was a long thread by someone, it reminded me of how you opened your book. So in this thread, they said that there had been an erasure of President Obama's legislative legacy. And when you open the book, you talk about how there was an attempt to delegitimize him before he even took office. And, you know, that there was this large swath of people who were intent on delegitimizing him before he took office. And these people were not persuadable. And I think we can see that now because I think in a sense, there has kind of been an erasure due to that. Is that a fair observation? Absolutely. I think that there was from the beginning and the beginning being before he was president, when he was a Illinois-based politician whom people on the left were proposing as a potential presidential candidate, there was a desire on the right to minimize or eliminate him. And as he grew in popularity, as more and more people began to follow him, the desperation around containing him increased. And I really try to make case in the book that this is very congruent with what the African-American experience has been. It's always been about containment from the days of slavery when there were literal shackles on people and there were literal chains and prohibitions against movement through the Reconstruction era where there were attempts to keep African-Americans in rural situations and any attempt to physically migrate or to intellectually migrate, to go to school, to go to college, to integrate. It's always been about containing Black movements keeping us in our place. And with the emergence of a potential African-American presidential candidate, there was a desire to keep him and his family in their place. And that place wasn't in the presidential quarters of the White House, you know, unless they were going to be cleaning it. No, you're absolutely right. That's such a good observation, the comparison of the literal shackles and this containment through just kind of sabotage, I guess, right? He entered the political landscape at a really, really interesting time. He won the U.S. Senate race in 2004, and that was a midterm year, the, the year that George W. Bush won re-election. It was three years after 9-11, and, you know, one could argue that Bush won that election because of 9-11. But, you know, at the time, and I'm sure you remember this, you know, there was a heightening of bigotry towards Muslims, anyone brown. Obama's name didn't really help that. And, and I think, like you said earlier, any Black person entering the political landscape at that moment would have had a challenge, but he had some particular things about him, his background, you know, his parents, that just kind of elevated those attacks. Can you talk about that, like how those factors and the time we were living in around 2004, how that factored into how he was perceived? 
Absolutely, Jen. And, and you started with one of the most obvious ones, which is the name. He is the first Barack most people knew, the first Obama most people knew. And certainly with that middle name of Hussein coming on the aftermath of the 9-11 incident, the uniqueness and foreignness of that name was problematic. An African father with a white mother. So all of the specter of mixed relationships coming in was going to be a problem for him. In the minds of many, he seemed to come out of nowhere. There was a day in American history when even political junkies didn't know who Barack Obama was. And then he gives a speech at the convention and he's on the front page of every newspaper. Anything that emerges really quickly like that, whether it's an individual or a product, is really prime for sort of conspiracy thinking. Many of the things he did were incongruous with what people thought that profile should be. So going to Harvard Law, but going to Harvard Law and then being a community organizer. So the biography individual pieces all added up to profile that was exploitable to those individuals who wanted to exploit it. You know, you're so right, because I consider myself a political junkie, obviously, and I hadn't heard of him either. And I remember when the book came out, the book that kind of like launched him onto the national landscape. I remember that. But then again, I kind of forgot. I forgot that he was still there, you know, because he wasn't consistently in the headlines. Um, that's the first thing I'll say. But the second thing I'll say is that I find myself and I try to catch myself saying that he had an unconventional background. But unconventional to whom? Because you can go to any city in this country and within a few minutes, you know, just going to the downtown area, you can run into somebody with a similar background, right? This We're a nation of immigrants. We're a nation of people of color. His background really isn't that unconventional. But the thing that's really unusual about his trajectory is because it's unusual for people or uncommon for people with his background to rise to the level of political success that he did. And that was the problem that they had. Right. To rise really quickly. He wasn't, I mean, he was obviously a member of the Democratic Party, but he wasn't somebody that, you know, you had seen being groomed step by step along the way. You know, he really had a national platform on his first big outing. And, you know, he knocked it out of the park with that speech for Kerry, which identified him to the world. The book you referred to was on the bestseller list for months and months and months. Interestingly, though, another book that no one pays attention to that was on the bestseller list was an attack against him, The Abomination. And so there was constituency ready for someone like Barack Obama. I remember a colleague of mine reminding me that ethnicity and race was not necessarily the lens that everyone would see him through. She said, oh my God, it'll be so nice to vote for somebody like me, someone who was raised by a single mother. And to her, that was the common denominator, right? She looked and she had one sibling, he had one sibling, a father that had disappeared, and that was a common denominator. 
Well, you know, that's really funny because he meant different things to different people. You know, he had this Ivy League background and then he was a community organizer, but then he was also in a sense kind of a political insider because he was given this platform, you know, with a speech. And I remember when I was, (laughs) when I did become aware of him telling my son, like, you know, his hair is like yours. He looks like you. You know, so he meant a lot of things to a lot of different people. Yeah. And African-Americans of my generation, and in fact, Gwen Ifill in her book about him talks about this. There was a a very common sentiment for those of us whose parents weren't alive to watch his run for the White House, to watch that election night, to watch that inauguration. Man, I wish my parents could have lived to see this, right? I would have loved for my mother. And that was my experience, but it was the experience of so many African-Americans who had you know, come of age in the middle of the prior century, lived through the civil rights movement. And it was just such a culminating moment for so many of us. You know, I have an aside, an interesting story about that. I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, you know, where Martin Luther King was assassinated. And, you know, my mother lived through the civil rights movement and she was alive to see Barack Obama. She's still alive, but she was alive to see Barack Obama elected. And I remember having a conversation with her during the primaries and just being really frustrated because. I understand this thinking of growing up in the South and in the deep South, right, where I grew up and not being kind of wary of or suspicious of something like this. And I remember her telling me, well, I'm not going to vote for him in the primary because it's a trap. (laughs) (laughs) She said, you know, that he's not going to win anyway, so I'm not going to vote for him. And I remember getting a little kind of like peeved and saying, like, he won't win. We can never win if we don't believe that he can win. So you have to vote for him. So I told her, you know, to vote for him. But that's just, you know, an aside. Your mother is not unusual. That was ironically one of his big obstacles. You know, there was your mother's way of thinking, well, he's not going to win anyway. And then the other really common thing that I was able to document and collect versions of was the sentiment of people who liked him so much they wouldn't vote for him because he was the father of two young daughters and they were just confident that he was going to be assassinated, the girls were going to get kidnapped, that the hardcore white supremacists the radical fringe of that group was not going to let a black man run for president successfully, move into the White House. So, you know, I start one of the chapters in the book with a quote from him about it. Not only do I have to convince people who are indecisive about me based on, oh, I don't know if I agree with him on this policy. I don't know if I see this international situation the same way he does. He had to convince people who were like, oh my God, he's wonderful. I love him so much. Oh God, he can't be president. You know, they'll kill him. <laughs> That's actually what we think about the presidency, right? Like no one wants that job. To add, it's a certain generational thing again, because I am old enough, as you know, from trying to walk me through my tech needs in anticipation of this interview to have remembered the assassinations of John F. Kennedy, Robert F. Kennedy, Malcolm X, and Martin Luther King. And so there are those of us who went through that in the 1960s who scrutinize any public figure against that backdrop of what it was like every couple of years to have someone felled that way. And certainly Barack Obama hit the marks for that. And we had a sort of post-traumatic stress response to seeing him out there and just wondering when and if someone was going to shoot him. You know, but early on, you know, so you talk about his daughters and his family and, you know, you think about the people, the people who were primarily responsible for attacking him 
you know, they're always going on about family values and, you know, oh, da, da, you know, tradition. And based on what they say they want, he fit that template to a T. He had these young daughters, you know, he had this wife, and you know, they you know, they had a very traditional American family, but that didn't seem to matter. And, you know, one of the things that he was attacked on very early was his kind of Americanness. So that he wasn't American enough. And they used that as a cudgel, especially this, you know, the thing whether he was wearing a flag pin or not. That just kept coming up. There was a desire to make him a non-American, not a different kind of American, but a non or a, a hostile, a self-loathing American was the desire. So people would say, with evidence to the contrary, that he wouldn't wear a flag pin, that he wouldn't salute the flag, that he wouldn't sing the national anthem. I make the case in the book that his first inauguration was choreographed in such a way as to try to diminish that way of thinking in his opposition and to try to pull as many people again on the edge of the fringe over as possible. There was a lot of press attention, for example, to the fact that he asked if he could be sworn in on the same Bible that Abraham Lincoln was sworn in. They got it out of the National Archives and they brought it over so that Michelle Obama could hold the same Bible that Lincoln used to swear him in. Traditionally, what presidents have done has been to use a family Bible, the Bible of their home, the Bible that they grew up with. I can't prove this, but I'm fairly confident that all of that choreography around Lincoln's Bible was to mitigate the number of people who would say that he was sworn in on the Koran. Even though he was sworn in on Lincoln's Bible, it still circulated afterwards that he was sworn in on the Koran, and that had happened with his Senate seat as well. It became this kind of backdrop against, you know, you think of all of the challenges that anyone, regardless of political party, faces when they assume the presidency. But then to have this machine out there that's just trying to perpetuate, to call it misinformation is to be polite, just adds another whole layer of challenges that you have to get through. You know, I think the fact that he, again, to use this word for lack of a better word, he did have this kind of unconventional background, right? If he had been, I'm trying to think of, you know, like Cory Booker, for example, they wouldn't have had all these other, these tools to use against him, you know, all of these details to use against him. I do find it interesting that this machine was in place, you know, well before he was even thought of as being a potential presidential candidate. Do you know why? Like, why were they even attacking him as a senator? Because we've had, you know, decades and decades of Black senators. What was going on there? One of the things that the Obama presidency reinforces, I think, is there's a segment of the American population that is profoundly anti-African, which is different than being anti-African American. But you drew the analogy with Cory Booker, and I think you're absolutely right. And a question that I get a lot of time is whether or not Colin Powell would have faced the kind of racism that Barack Obama faced. And when you peel back the layers at what it is about Barack Obama's race that can be so upsetting to people, it's the one generation from Africa piece of it. His father is an international student from Kenya. There's all of these god-awful memes that circulated with him with bones through his nose, 
and loin wraps on, you know, completely evoking an image of a savage that you couldn't apply that to Cory Booker or to Colin Powell, right? But you can do that to the son of an African and someone who proudly talks in his autobiography about his first kind of pilgrimages to Africa. The way in which the Ebola outbreak is treated during his administration. And again, when you look at what was going on the right-wing blogs and in the comments after a news story about Ebola and what people were saying, what they did with the two names, Obama, Ebola. I could show you so many permutations of the collapsing of Obama and Ebola into names. There's a really strong anti-African sentiment that the presence of Barack Obama as a president really triggered. And I think that's one of the things that distinguished him from other more, you've been using the word unconventional, if you could call Cory Booker or Colin Powell or Condoleezza Rice. They're the kind of Black Americans that white Americans are more accustomed to. There's something familiar about people whose parents grew up in the South and that whole biography. They didn't want to learn a biography of a Black man from Hawaii. What's up with that? You know, it was just so different than what people are, are accustomed to. And part of the population responded to that difference by saying, well, that's great. You know, that's that's good. Hawaii's a state. And other people started questioning whether or not Hawaii, I mean, I actually have things that questioned whether or not he was a citizen because actually the way in which Hawaii became a state was illegitimate. And so that would have meant that no one from Hawaii could have become president. I guess this is kind of getting into the psychology of it, which is interesting. But I've always been interested in the way that African-Americans were viewed in comparison to other Black Americans, right? And I don't really know what the answer is to this, but you're right. There's something about perhaps it's assimilation, like they're comfortable with the amount of assimilation that African-Americans, you know, whose ancestors were slaves. They're comfortable with the way that we have been kind of assimilated into society versus someone who was just like one or two generations removed from Africa. I mean, that's just my, you know, non-professional, non-expertise take. No, I think there's definitely something to that. There's that impulse to pigeonhole and to compartmentalize and to keep people in a place that's much easier if you're following that script. If your ancestors were slaves and, and maybe a generation or two, you know, you were a part of the migration. There are white Americans who know what to do with that story and what they want to do with that story. And when we stray, when people using the same identifiers stray from the prescribed profile, that's something to be squashed. No, you're absolutely right. And I don't want to leave it as, you know, there isn't racism. There would be racism if he were traditional Black American, but it's different and there's a playbook for that. Right. And they use that one on Michelle, right? Because Michelle is the more conventional, right? Michelle's parents were a part of the migration. They can date back to slavery. A hardworking couple in Chicago sending her to a magnet school, buying the best possible opportunities they could for two children. She fit a kind of a African-American dream. And that was part of what made her very appealing to white voters 
on the left, that profile was whites who endorsed the, and worked on the civil rights movement, worked for, for the kind of opportunities that she made for herself and took advantage of. But the far right kept waiting for and employing all of the anti-Black women stereotypes that they had been using since the middle of the 19th century. So the fact that she had a dark complexion and that she was large, in their eyes large, was the subject of so much bashing of her and her looks and so forth. So, you know, there's a whole series of beliefs that she's transgender and that she was born a man and their proof is in what we would see as the characteristics of an attractive black woman. They're using those very characteristics to say, look at those broad shoulders, look at her bone structure, look at her facial structure, look at her color. Of course, she was born a man and transitioned. There certainly are ways in which African-Americans who fit the preferred profile get bashed just as mightily. And we see it in this couple as someone like Barack, who was so different. Yeah. The interesting thing about Michelle Obama, I think she was tall. She was like 5'10", or not was. She is. She's really tall. And she wears, you know, these heels. And, you know, the thing about, you know, saying that she was born a man or, you know, making reference to her size. Um, I remember that. And I remember someone coming to her defense saying, hey, this is, you know, classic massage noir, because, you know, she... She's actually, I think someone wrote a post about her being like actually a size eight or size 10 or something. And that was just the way that they were perceiving her and attaching all of these stereotypes to her. And she, you know, she fit none of them, especially, you know, they tried to attach the, the welfare queen trope to her and some other, other tropes. But the one that I remember the most, and I'm curious about what your take is on this, was that New Yorker cover, that infamous New Yorker cover where Obama was wearing like a long robe and there was a picture of Osama bin Laden on the wall of the Oval Office. Michelle Obama had an afro and like a gun strapped to her. There's something else about that photo. She was, um, I think they were doing it like a fist bump or something. And then there was a flag burning in the fireplace of the Oval Office. Everyone remembers this, right? And I don't really know what I want to ask about this, but I, one of the things I was curious about is they said it was satire because it was on the cover of the New Yorker and the New Yorker wouldn't do something like that, unless it was satire, I guess. I don't know. What did you think about the apology and the explanation following that? I thought it exemplified what was going on and continues to go on. It exemplifies the way in which the left thinks about the right and so forth. So I'm going to give the New Yorker the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to say that they thought it was satire that they thought it was pointed and that people might go, oh my God, you know, we were, you know, some kind of a we here are really off base here and that they might move some people with that cover. I don't really think that they understood. And when I say they here, I mean the New Yorker and much of the mainstream media at that time, many of the political consultants that Democrats were using I don't think they understood the right and the far right to the point that people would look at that and take it literally. People would look at that as evidence of Michelle's radicalism and Obama's faith. I don't think they saw that coming. And even when it came, they still wanted to say, well, that's some weird little fringe group that can't be representative of a significant segment of the population because the people that I have cappuccino with aren't like that. 
And so, you know, this, one of your opening questions is about erasure. I think there was until the election of Trump, a kind of erasure of a, a swath of working class whites that were extraordinarily malleable and who could very easily be manipulated into really virulently racist, nationalist, and xenophobic ways of thinking and ways of acting. I don't think that the editors of The New Yorker got that that population was there, and I don't think they learned as much as they might have from that moment. Yeah, sure. I mean, I subscribe to The New Yorker. <laughs> you know, when my name was in the quoted in The New Yorker, which has happened twice, I'm running around, I'm in The New Yorker! <laughs> you know, you know, we left, you know, we're so easy, you know? <laughs> I mean, oh, it's, I know. it's one of the jokes, right? It, why are they so worried about us? What are we going to do? Beat them up with our public television tote bags? I mean, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I've got my tote bag and no one can use it because I wanted to keep it pristine. But anyway, so yeah, so we, we, we love the New Yorker. You know, there's some other things, but I will give them a pass. However, I will say this. There is good satire and then there's satire that fails. And I think that this probably falls in the latter category. That's just my opinion. I agree. And there was a lot of that, in fact, and there's a term for it now. And I think the term is onionized. And so it's when the onion, which is all satire, right? Like the thing with the New Yorker is, you know, they've done some stunning covers. I thought that their cover after September 11th was stunning. You know, they have responded with some absolutely fabulous, you know, their books on the history of New Yorker covers that are dead to rights good. And so when they do have one that's so satirical as they wanted the Obama one to be, the audience doesn't you know, know quite where to accept it. With something like The Onion, that's their marching orders. They are a satire magazine. And when they do a satire, people know, should know to what to accept that, but there have been many things, particularly about Obama that have appeared in The Onion, and people have used that to raise money for far-right causes as if it were the gospel truth. One of the patriotism, you asked me about the patriotism ones a little while ago. One of the patriotism ones came from a satire piece from a magazine without nearly the name recognition, a blog or something, without the name recognition of The New Yorker. And the guy wrote this whole thing saying that Barack Obama was asked about the national anthem. And he said he didn't like it. He didn't like the bombs bursting in air part and everything. And he wanted to substitute it for, I'd like to teach the world to sing, which was a vacuous old Coca-Cola jingle in the 1960s, which had a bunch of people on the top of a hilltop singing. And in, you know, I'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. You know, it was a kind of a kumbaya song. And people were livid that he wanted to change the national anthem to a Coca-Cola jingle, not recognizing that this was a satirical piece. <laughs> okay. I could see that. You know, but you mentioned something about the Democratic Party apparatus not realizing that this was not just a fringe group. But you know who else knew that it wasn't a fringe group? Donald Trump. Like, he knew his people well. He learned them. He's a quick study. I think it's very hard for some of us when you find yourself in the act of giving Donald Trump credit for something, there's like a, <laughs> a spasm that can kind of happen. But he realized who to ask. He realized very quickly. He went to the owner of one of the most right-wing 
websites at the time in 2012 and said, when you write about Obama, what gets the most hits? What gets the most comments? What really gets your readers stirred up? And he said, anything we do about his eligibility to be president, birther stories, anything we report on that, that gets the hits. That's more than the Muslim. It's more than the patriotism. And that's the point at which Trump embraced, acted like he embraced the controversy, the created manufactured controversy over Barack Obama's birth certificate. So Trump is smart enough to know who to ask and then how to exploit the information that he gets and what question to ask. If you put yourself in that zone, that was a really good question to ask. You know, it certainly didn't turn out the way we would have liked, but he did get into the White House for a reason. He figured out how to tap into that mindset and how to manipulate people previously had not voted into registering and voting. You know, there was even a segment of the population who had voted for Obama who voted for Trump. He's an interesting case study. I've always wondered what that was about. You know, and I think that a lot of us dismissed him. Oh, maybe Obama included. I know publicly he appeared to dismiss these attacks from Trump as being, you know, the attacks of, of a buffoon, right? <laughs> like this nonsense. And, you know, he is a buffoon. And it's just really hard to reconcile the fact that, yes, he is this, but also he did this really smart thing, right? And I've never been able to reconcile those things. And he has, again, this is really hard to say, but both Barack Obama and Donald Trump have charisma. The charisma works on different populations, but they both are capable of attracting really adoring acolytes who just are taken with them and persuaded by them. And, and Trumps are extraordinarily, you know, we look at them and go, how can you believe these two things at the same time, right? Like, how can you believe that Trump said that armed individuals ought to be allowed into the ellipse and be allowed to march to the Capitol? How can you believe that at the same time that you believe that all of those people were Antifa and members of Black Lives Matter? Like, would Trump have allowed armed people for Black Lives Matter? You know, those two things are totally incongruent. And that's one of the things that, that you know, those of us who study conspiracy theories talk about is the fact that you can hold two opposite views at the same time. And it's what makes the desire that people have to find a logic behind it. You know, a lot of the questions I get are, help me understand the logic of how someone could come to believe that. And it's often one of the hardest questions to answer because it defies the rules of logic the way most of us understand that. Yeah, actually, I have so many questions for you. I'm thinking of all of the conspiracy theories right now, and, and, and I try to tell people this isn't logical. But we're talking about President Obama today. Perhaps I'll get a chance to ask you all my other questions. But um, you know, before we get to the, the most recent Republican, I want to talk a bit about John McCain and that primary. Because, you know, the, there was this moment, and I'm sure you remember this moment. So there was a town hall. John McCain was doing this town hall and a woman stood up, you know, an older white woman. And, you know, she asked, you know, I heard he's a, an Arab, right? You know, and I think I, I was curious of what you think about that moment, because I my take from that was it was President Obama who wasn't president at the time. But I think he benefited from that rather than McCain. What I think happened there was really interesting because there's a way in which McCain 
in part lost the election because of that moment. I compare that moment because McCain took the mic and he said, no, you know, this is a fair fight. And her name was Gail McQuinnell. And people felt like the candidate she was wearing a McCain pale and t-shirt at the time, she was a volunteer. And he, in the eyes of many on the right, shamed her publicly. And there was a lot of fallout for McCain afterwards, making it difficult for him to mobilize. There's a moment when Trump was running in 2015-2016 where he's questioning what then-President Barack Obama's nuclear deal with Iran and somebody from the crowd yells out, and he goes, you know, I don't know why he signed that. You know, McCain says, I don't know why Obama signed that. It's a terrible deal. And somebody from the audience yelled out, it's because he's a Muslim. And Trump takes the mic. He gets the guy to repeat it. He makes a moment out of it. And he celebrates it. And he gets the media to watch him celebrate it. He gets elected president. He bashes Obama for being a Muslim. And he gets elected president. John McCain took the high road and he lost. And there's obviously a, other factors at work, but the difference between McCain and Romney, Obama's opponents in 2008 and 2012, and Trump was no matter what you might think of the politics of the two of them, they would only go so low. And Trump was willing to go lower and he was rewarded for it. And there was much more attention to that Gail Quinnell moment when John McCain died. It was the most commonly replayed clips in the period between the announcement that he had died and his funeral. It was like, oh, remember when politicians were like this and they were, when it actually happened, it didn't get a lot of coverage. It got some coverage, but it didn't get nearly the coverage that it got when he died. You know, that moment, the, the idea that because Trump leaned into that moment, you know, saying that, you know, it's because Barack Obama is a Muslim, you know, that element in their constituency still just scares me. That's just a comment, right? The fact that normal Republicans just weren't brutal enough, right? I think we see that now in the way things have degraded. Let's talk about Obama's role in the current political moment, or just go back a bit, like the 2020 election. You know, everything that we've just gone through about what happened during his primary and, you know, the Trump years, how has he shown up in their imaginations? Let's just say the 2020 election. Well, and of course, it started when Trump got elected. And one of the things, you know, he got elected running as much against Barack Obama, who wasn't his opponent, as he did running against Hillary. And then when he's in office, remember, he'd been promising that he was going to have Obama indicted and he was going to be punished for his crimes and so forth. He quickly set himself to the task of undoing as much of what Obama had done as he could legislatively and with his executive orders. One of his disappointments, a very good thing for the rest of, I think, was the Affordable Care Act. He wanted so much to dismantle the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare. When he couldn't do that, he accused Obama of creating a deep state of bureaucrats in Washington who stayed on behind the scenes with the goal of disrupting or destroying as much of Trump's agenda as possible. 
QAnon really comes out of that sort of deep state mentality, the fact that Obama was still in control. And it shows up in 2020 when around January 5th, videos start to get posted, tweets begin to go out accusing Barack Obama of having conspired with the prime minister of Italy in 2016 to have Italian satellites to change the votes on Dominion voting machines four years later in 2020 from Trump to Biden. All of this was set up, according to the believers of this, back in 2016. When this begins to hit the Twittersphere and, and there were these YouTube videos, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of hits, you know, in 24 hours. And it becomes one of the ones that Trump insists that Mark Meadows get to the bottom of. And so those Trump's advisors that we've been seeing in the hearings had to call their counterparts in Italy to get their proof of this because there was this thought, that's what happened. Obama did it back in 2016 when he was setting up the deep state. That late into the recent history Barack Obama did it and it's a bad thing was very much on the minds of, of the far right. I'm just curious, and I don't know if you have the answer to this, that it's clear from what you've just said and everything we've talked about that, you know, I've always thought of Trump and his presidency as a grievance campaign, right? He was never interested in legislating. He doesn't care about policy. He doesn't care about anything. He doesn't care about people. I'm curious as to why Republicans have tolerated that and why they didn't turn on him, because he wasn't really interested in furthering their legislative agenda, if they even have one. I don't even know if they have one, but he was interested in revenge. <laughs> and, you know, I, I'm just not really sure, like, why an entire political party would say, like, you know, hey, because honestly, I think that if there were something that Trump thought would hurt Obama, but it was good for progressives or Democrats, he would do that, too. I think one of the things that I hope that the Democrats have learned from the whole Trump experience is that you can't paint all Republican voters with the same brush. So you have the far right MAGA hat wearing, you know, the QAnon shaman, the most visible of people on January 6th. You have those voters that I think are the ones, you know, you're talking about that Trump was really able to manipulate and exploit. And then you have Republicans who are, you know, they have issues, Second Amendment, pro-life. They approach those with something you and I might recognize as a policy-oriented foundation. And they will acknowledge that they didn't like the way Trump comported himself. They didn't like his language. They didn't like the Access Hollywood tape. But their goal was getting the Supreme Court changed and their goal was protecting the second amendment and they were willing to vote for trump and for what trump supported and get in bed with the QAnon shaman and his ilk and i think that the nuances of that voting block really needs to be understood if you're going to come up with a voting block that defeats it that makes total sense because you don't need a legislative agenda if you have the supreme court and then there were the suit-wearing Republicans, right? The polished Republicans. And I'm sure, you know, when Trump held the Bible upside down, you know, at that church in Washington and stuff, you know, it turned their stomach. You know, the people who have a sense of Christianity that's their sense and that's, again, you and I might recognize as 
fundamental or too fundamental or whatever, but it's theirs. And Trump has nothing that's not Trump. There's no belief other than whatever he finds satisfying in a given moment is what the world should aspire to. Okay, so final question about Trump, because this is an observation that I've made, and I and maybe it's wrong. <laughs> I don't know if you'd agree with this, but you mentioned that both Trump and Obama were charismatic, and I, I would agree with that. And you know, thinking about January 6th and what people went through to defend his honor and his legacy or whatever they were doing, right? Trump, maybe he's charismatic, but he's not a very inspirational character. You know, he's dumpy, he's a failed business person, he's not that Right. I mean, it's just like it doesn't have anything that's really appealing. And I don't think he inspires anyone. I'm not really sure how someone like that gets people to break into the, like, ruin their lives, essentially, right? The hundreds of people who've been charged. And I think that, I've always thought this, that this wasn't necessarily about Trump. It was about their shared hatred of Obama. Oh, and I he was the person. So it wasn't him, you know, like. Obama and what he represented. And another thing we haven't talked about that is a part of all of this, that I think it's worth mentioning at the end, that we learned about, we learned again about segments of the American population through this whole experience is how anti-intellectual it is, how one of the attributes of both Obamas that gets ridiculed is their education, is that they went to good schools, that they aspired to go to good schools, that they succeeded there. There was a time in which we were told that was a pervasive element of the American dream. But, you know, it turns out, you know, when you read some of the interviews with people in the fossil fuel states, right, with coal mining and the fact that their offspring, you know, might not be able to grow up and work in the coal mines, like, for so many of us, that seems counter to the aspiration that you would want the best possible education and you would want a knowledge economy, but that becomes really something that gets ridiculed about Obama. And Mensa's not knocking down Donald Trump's door with a membership application, right? I mean, he revels <laughs> in he revels in his inarticulateness and his limited vocabulary and you know the misspelled tweets and people see that as, it's almost like they're saying, I don't have to be real careful about my spelling because Trump isn't careful about his spelling. Or you people who condemn his spelling, you're just elites. You just want to spend too much money on going to college because you believe in punctuation. And so we've learned a lot. I hope we've learned a lot from what we've been through in the past dozen or so years. That's another nuanced point. I could just talk to you forever about this stuff, but that's another nuanced point because it does bother him if people perceive him as not being smart, right? Because he said that, you know, I think there was some quote where I don't like people thinking I'm not smart, right? But there's a certain type of smart that he wants to be considered, right? And I think that's the thing that they've attached to the Obamas and to liberals and Democrats. Ivy League intellectualism, you know, they've been able to successfully paint that as being kind of like foolishness. You know, they lack common sense. You know, they may have like these fancy degrees, but they don't have the common sense street smarts, the business smarts that someone like Donald Trump has. Well, and they set up a binary, right? The binary is you are either elitist, Harvard, Yale, Ivy League smart, or you're blue collar and you know how to work with your hands and you know how to do a long day's work. You know, work is defined physically. And there's this binary that doesn't imagine 
a scenario, you know, I, I have a PhD. I was a dean at UCLA. I'm a farmer's daughter. I know how to clean out a horse stall. Like, it's not a binary. You can be both. And many people are. But there's this impulse towards a kind of a compartmentalization and a, a narrowing down to some basic core types. If you went from Harvard, you don't know how to use a shovel. And if you know how to use a shovel, you can write a tweet that doesn't have correct spelling. Seems so obvious, but, you know, here we are. Well, Pat Turner, I'm so excited about this book, Trash Talk, Anti-Obama Lore and Race in the 21st Century. Thank you for taking time to talk to me today. I really enjoyed our conversation and I love the book. Great. And I'm happy to chat with you at any time. This has been really fun for me as well. 